0: Before I begin the reading, Scott asked me to have a reflection on my mother. My mother was the most amazing woman. She was formidable in many ways, uh, but she was just phenomenal. I I started my own journey as a mother interstate and overseas, but there was always communication, which started with very expensive international and STD phone calls and transversed into email. Mum died before Facebook and Instagram and Twitter eventuated, but no doubt, the smart woman that she was, she would have mastered those so that she could have kept in touch with me and our amazing family. And I think I took that journey into it with my boys that you learn to communicate. It doesn't matter how it is, whether it's a text or a phone call or just a photo on Instagram to make your heart melt. It's wonderful. So communication is the art of successful parenting. And that came from my mum. Moving forward, the reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6 and can be found on page 305 on the Bibles in front of you. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ao, sons of Abinadad, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ao was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with All their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, cisterns and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakom, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out again Uzzah and to this day that place is called Perez, Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead he took it to the house of obed edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of obed edom the Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edon and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edon to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw the king King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death.
1: Thanks so much, Suze, and uh, hello again great to be with you. If you could keep your Bibles open at uh, page 305, it'd be very, very helpful, uh, especially to me, hopefully also to you as well. Now, uh, I do want to start off today, as we always do, talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, that's not true, but I do want to talk about it because it's one of those classic movies, isn't it, that everybody knows. I mean, even though the film came out in 1981, nearly 40 years ago, just about everyone has heard of Indiana Jones, the intrepid, history professor who scours the world in search of invaluable historical artefacts to protect them from the evil clutches of the Nazis. Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, it had everything. Not just exotic locations and romance and explosions and fist fights. I mean, the Nazis were trying to uh, capture, secure the Ark of the Covenant. That's just what we've been reading about where it was gathering dust because they believed that if they acquired and took possession of this Ark, their armies would become invincible. Such a terrific film. And uh, at the end of the film, and I don't mind spoiling it for you, by the way, because you've only had about 40 years to watch it. (laughs) At the end of the film, despite the the best efforts of our hero, Indiana Jones, the Nazis have got the Ark. And as they open it, flames flare and angels of death meet out their horrific vengeance upon the Nazis whose faces melt and heads explode. uh, Indiana Jones and his romantic interest, Marion, are spared because they refused to look at the Ark. And at the very end of the film, the Ark is placed in a government warehouse in America. Well, of course it would. So much intrigue, so much action and adventure. It really is one of those kind of classic films that everyone knows, but clearly fiction just a good old school kind of story and yet as we read 2 Samuel chapter 6 today we discover that the Ark of the Covenant is not just kind of fodder for a Hollywood blockbuster the return of the lost Ark represents a real high point for the people of God under the Old Testament kingship of David and it's not without its action and it's not without its drama but this time it's for real Now, if you've not been with us, we are uh, in the second week in our series in 2 Samuel, an ancient historical book of the Bible that really charts the rise and the fall of Israel's greatest king, King David. And uh, in many ways, it anticipates the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week we saw uh, David ascend to rule over all Israel across five messy and chaotic chapters that were not without bloodshed. And that ascension to the throne required his patience and his integrity and some hope. And really his complicated transition to rule prepares us for Jesus' complicated transition to his kingdom. You see, just as uh, David was rejected by some of his own people, so Jesus was rejected by his own people. Just as God was with David, so God was with Jesus as he ushered in his kingdom through his perfectly obedient life through his sacrificial death, through his triumphant resurrection. But last week we left David uh, at a town called Hebron in Israel, a town forever associated with uh, patriarchs like Abraham, that is, the first recipients of the promises and the blessing of God. But as David took over the reign of all Israel, the whole country, he captured the city of Jerusalem. So to make sense of today, I just need to provide a little bit of background about Jerusalem, and then also about this Ark of the Covenant. Now, some of you will know, most of you will know, I suppose, that the city of Jerusalem today is home to um, really three of the world's great religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And of course, that's caused many political and religious tensions, hasn't it? And though it was already a city of uh, some significance, Jerusalem really became this prominent place under the reign of King David, here in 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. Uh, In chapter 5 he captured it from the Jebusites, who had explicitly and insolently rejected David's royal authority, even though they lived within the borders of his kingdom. So he really had no choice but to capture it, which he did. And you can see there in chapter 5 verses 7 to 9, he called it the city of David and he fortified it And under the sovereign working of God, you can see there in verse 10, he became more powerful because God was with him. So much so that the king of Tyre, and Tyre was a a, a very important seaport on the Mediterranean coast, the king of Tyre brought tribute to David and built him a great palace in Jerusalem. And uh, we get to the point in chapter 5, verse 12, and I'd love you to read along with me here, where it tells us, Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So that's a key verse, isn't it? It was God who established David, and he knew it. And for, furthermore, David knew that God had established his kingdom, not for his own sake, but for the sake of his people, which is untrue of most human rulers. And so the importance of Jerusalem in Jewish and Old Testament thinking <coughs> is really, though, that it's the city of God's great king, Old Jerusalem, was the city of David. As Christians, we're not awaiting a return to that city. In fact, we're told in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10, we have already come to the city of the living God, not a city of a dead human king. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. And we do look forward to the coming of the new Jerusalem, of being within that spiritual city where Jesus is the undisputed king at the end of all time. But back to David, his kingdom centred in geographic physical Jerusalem goes from strength to strength he decides that he really ought to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the center of the city to the very middle of his kingdom so that's Jerusalem but the Ark of the Covenant uh, it was a gold-plated wooden box looks something like that and in this box contained the stone tablets on which God had inscribed the, the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses when he established his covenant with Moses in the book of Exodus. You remember that. It represented the covenant, the binding promise between God and his Old Testament people, Israel. That is God's binding promise to be their God and their binding obligation to be his people. The ark, this kind of box, was a a physical, tangible representation of himself to his people. That's why it says there in chapter 6, verse 2, it's called by the name. Uh, it's almost as if God's enthroned between those two cherubim on top of the ark. So it's an extremely holy object, right? Even Raiders of the Lost Ark picked up this. Um, It was not to be touched by human hands. People had previously died just by looking into it. It was to be carried by the priests using poles that you can see there through special uh, gold rings that were fitted for that exact purpose and covered with layers of coverings, so that the people wouldn't even look upon it in case they died, even if just for a moment. And David decided that the fact that it had been captured by their enemies, the Philistines, some 70 years earlier, and left to collect dust in a forgotten town was not good. Something had to be done. And David's recent defeat of the Philistines at the end of chapter 5 opens up the way for the return of the lost ark it was time to bring it back, right into the very centre, the heart of Jerusalem, so that it would clearly show that even King David, his reign, was subject to the sovereign rule of the God of heaven and earth. And it was such a significant undertaking that David assembled 30,000 able-bodied men. That's likely more than what he had used to capture Jerusalem. It's likely more than what he had used to defeat the Philistines. But three things happen in the rest of the chapter which are surprising and which reveal to us something about worshipping, something about approaching, something about serving this sovereign God of heaven and earth. And firstly, we see that we worship God with reverence, not carelessness, even if it's well-intentioned carelessness. The first time David tries to return the lost ark, we learn that you rightly approach God with careful reverence, not carelessness. Now I, I um, follow bicycle racing. I read in the paper this week Australians think it's the second most boring sport to watch behind golf but I love it and I've loved it for 20 years and there are really two types of um, bicycle races. There are one day races which go for one day as the name suggests and there's stage races which would typically go for about a week uh, but there are three grand tours. Uh, You would have heard of the Tour de France. There is also a tour of Italy called the Giro and a tour of Spain called the Vuelta. And these three grand tours are called grand because they each go for three gruelling weeks. Now, the Giro d'Italia, the tour of Italy, is on right now and for the very first time ever. It started outside of Europe. In fact, it started in Jerusalem, this city we've been mentioning. And, uh, And I was very interested Uh, to read of the writers' reactions to being in this city, Jerusalem. Some of them snuck out of their team hotels just to wander the streets. And a number of them said something to the effect of this. I'm not religious at all, but walking through the streets was emotional, powerful, fascinating. I'm not religious at all, but I respect the city. Now, that's how irreligious bike races treated the cobble streets of this ancient city, how would the people of God treat the Ark of the Covenant, that is the tangible symbol of his very presence and rule among them, how would they treat such a holy object? Well surprisingly you'd have to say way too carelessly and you sort of have to read back a little bit to get this, right? Uh, It it appears in verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3, that everything's kind of um, careful and it's sort of dignified. But we've noted that it's it's not covered at all and it's carried by Abinadab's sons. That may not even have been priests. And it's just sort of plonked on a cart, which is not only not the way that God instructed it clearly, but it turns out to be an idea they have borrowed from pagan Philistine priests, now that could be a problem and everyone's rejoicing with great vigour and the cart hits a bump I guess and the oxen falter and the ark looks to slip and Uza just reaches out a helping hand. I mean maybe it was even an involuntary reaction and he seems to suffer the same fate as the Nazis in the movie. He's struck dead and we're naturally shocked, maybe even indignant, Maybe even angry. I mean, you look in verse 8. David was angry. I mean, Uzzah was just trying to help, surely. I mean, he he had good intentions, didn't he? Well, maybe and maybe. But when you realise that the people had been given very specific instructions and that they ought to have known the holy freight they were carrying... And then maybe you can start to appreciate why Uzzah's irreverent action is called an irreverent act there in verse 7. Maybe you can understand why borrowing some harebrained idea of God's idolatrous enemies rather than obeying his clear instructions could be a problem. Now, maybe that's not a completely satisfying answer to you. But at the end of the day, God doesn't answer to us, does he? It's the other way around. And as our youth minister Nathan said to me this week, even well-intentioned disobedience is still disobedience. Friends, I think this is part of the reason why we need to study these awkward, unfashionable books of the Bible because they stop us from reinventing God according to our own imagination and they rescue us from regarding him as a fuzzy, bumbling grandfather kind of figure. Apologies to any fuzzy, bumbling grandfathers here. You know, he's holy. It means he's not to be trifled with. His words and instructions to us are to be believed and enacted in our lives because even sincerity and good intentions are not sufficient in themselves. I mean, don't you think the good people of Manly, who do many good and honest things, I mean, this might even be you, who do many good and honest things in their lives and in our community are well-intentioned and sincere? Of course they are. That does not mean they can approach the Almighty with confidence when He has said there's just one way to come to Him, which is through His Son. So it's it's not just about good intentions. And it's really of paramount importance that we approach God on His terms with careful reverence, not casual license. Now, you've got to realise godly fear is not the only way that we respond to God. We love Him as well. And it can be difficult to work out sometimes how those two go together. And it's certainly not true that we ought to be terrified of him all the time, but a bit of respect wouldn't kill us, would it? We approach him, we worship him, we serve him with reverence, not carelessness. And uh, the second thing we discover is that we worship, we serve, we approach God with wholehearted energy, not half hearted apathy. We worship him with enthusiasm not with lethargy. But it's very, again, it's very surprising how this uh, came about. Uh, after Uzzah is shockingly killed there, David is afraid to have the ark near him at all. I mean, read along with me in verse 9, where he says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? It's too frightening. God, is only going to bring trouble to me that close. And so David leaves the ark in the house of Obed-Edom. He is a, hit, a Gittite, that is a Philistine, an enemy. No way David was going to bring that presence of God into the very center of his city and kingdom. And yet he discovers that God isn't cause only for fear. The appropriate approach to God actually brings blessing. And you wouldn't have missed that this blessing came to the household of someone who was normally considered outside the scope of God's blessing someone who is normally counted as one of the enemies of God's people, Obed-Edom, a Philistine. So friends, let me say, if you think that God is to be trifled with recklessly, you want to be very careful. But if you think that God is only to be terrified of, you are equally mistaken. His desire is to bring blessing to those who come to Him with reverence, turning and trusting in His Son. And that's actually what we see. You'd have noticed this second time around, they pay careful attention to God's instructions. They're carrying the ark. They haven't got it plonked on a truck. And David sacrifices animals according to God's instructions to atone for their sins. And then in verse 17, he sets it in its place with further sacrifices. And this time there is uh, unbridled great rejoicing without any of the accompanying disaster. Let's read along in verse 12. Read along with me. David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bring up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. See, back in verse 5, the people were celebrating with all their might, but this time even the king joins in. But he has discarded his royal robes and he has donned a simple tunic, an ephod. He's not carrying on like he's entitled as the king and he won't be denied the joy and the pleasure of this occasion. God is with his people. And the generosity that the king shows to all the people when they each receive a hamper is an indication of what it's like to live in God's kingdom. Scott Morrison, you can keep your 10 bucks. You really can. This is a society of blessing. And God is in the middle of it. And even the king hardly joins in the celebrations in the guise of a servant. Don't you want to be a part of a kingdom like that? Don't you want to live in a society like that? Don't you think that we ought to serve and worship God with the same kind of wholehearted energy rather than our typical half-hearted lethargy. And I don't just mean on Sundays. In both the good and the bad, the shocking death of Uzzah, the exuberant dance of David, we learn something about God and His kingdom and what it means to be a part of it. And so we ought to serve God with wholehearted energy. very exciting next weekend isn't it you know what next weekend is you don't it's the royal wedding fair dinkum what's wrong with you people (sighs) now my um, my Carolyn who can I say I really appreciate the way uh, she carries out her motherhood in our household she brings gentleness into it which is definitely required in a household with four boys She's not overly optimistic about the royal couple. She thinks their backgrounds are so dissimilar it's going to be tricky for them. I, on the other hand, am much more scientific in my appraisal. I just think because they're such a handsome couple, they'll be fine. (laughs) So we're going to see who's right in due course. The royal wedding is, uh, and I'm I'm sure I'm I'm right on this, the royal wedding is the single biggest gospel opportunity of the year. I think that's right. I mean, you remember the last royal wedding, it sort of got upstaged by Pippa Middleton's dress. <laughs> and I know some of you are thinking actually it was her bottom, but yes, dress, which did seem to captivate the world. But this time around, right, assuming that a semi-royal, whatever you wanted to describe it, doesn't get in the way, billions of people, I mean billions, and get to tune in to hear a gospel message. And hopefully the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, hopefully he doesn't lose his nerve. And hopefully he gets to declare plainly how the marriage of Meghan and Harry reflects Christ's love for his people. Don't muck it up, Archbishop. But I want you to imagine in the middle of the royal wedding, Harry takes off his military uniform all the way down to his T-shirt and his boxes and he starts to dance energetically. How the tabloids would go to town on that, wouldn't they? Maybe that gives you a little bit of sympathy for Michal, the daughter of Saul, who was also David's first wife. Uh, she was his childhood sweetheart. She had helped David escape her father's murderous intentions in 1 Samuel, at great risk to her own personal safety. They'd been in love uh, but when Saul's relationship with David broke down she was given to another man and then when David eventually claimed the throne he took her back from the other man but by this time he had he already acquired other wives and for me very, in a very troubling way even in chapter 5, as late as chapter 5 he, he took more concubines and more wives and I think that is not only a troubling sign for what was to come for David but it must have been a real stab in the heart of his first wife Michal so very easy for us to sympathize with her as she looks through this window and she sees her husband the king dancing in plain clothes and though we might rightly sympathize with her for a number of reasons this time she is not right as she despises him verse 16 in her heart she's repulsed at his lack of dignity i mean he's the king And she labels his vigorous celebrations really as dirty dancing. That's what she calls it. And mislabels it, really, because it it, it was an act of glad humility, a king making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. She only saw a royal disrobing. He was absorbed by the graciousness of God. And check this out in verse 19. All the people went home happy, except the king, who went home and had a fight with his wife. And you gather from verse 23 that they never came back together. And so we can sympathise with Michal, and David is far from faultless. But we see here that even the king should worship God with joyful humility, not proud entitlement. Now, in many ways, uh, folks, we can apply those three things to us. Uh, We too must worship God with careful reverence, paying clear attention to His Word, which presents His Son as the means by which we approach God. We're not free, even with the best of intentions and and sincerity, to approach God on our terms. We too ought to serve Him day by day, wholeheartedly and energetically, not in the half-hearted way we do most of our lives before Him. And likewise, Christians, can I say that If in your life you cannot find evidence that you serve him or other people humbly, if in your life you sense a proud entitlement in your attitude towards church or to other people, maybe it's time for you to have a good look at yourself in the mirror and recalibrate. But really this passage, more than us, it actually points to Jesus. He is, of course, the one who always approached our Father in heaven with reverence. He obeyed him energetically and wholeheartedly, even to the point of his own death. And I'm sure you can remember times when he disrobed to wash his disciples' feet. That's disgusting. Or even when he was lifted naked upon the cross for our sakes. Surely Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. Did you realise, though, He doesn't bring the Ark of the Covenant into the midst of the people. Do you realise that? I wonder if that's because, in a very real sense, He was the Ark. Uh, In the sense of being the visible, tangible, holy representation of God's promises to His people. Did you ever think of Him like that? The very same character of God, who was tangibly and frighteningly represented by the Ark of the Covenant. As Jesus moved among his people, even into the city of Jerusalem, you'd recall people looked at him. People even touched him. But something strange happened. They weren't struck down. They weren't consumed. In fact, the opposite. They were healed. They were restored. How can that possibly be? People came into contact with the very same holiness of God that was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And instead of being struck down, they were restored. How could that be? Really is the same question, isn't it, that David asked, how can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? And the answer is the same. Only if there is a sacrifice that atones for or pays for our sins. course in david's day it was animals and grains that were offered in jesus case it was himself the holy one who might bring disaster actually brings blessing because he sacrificed himself on the cross in our place for our sins to bring us back to god friends we have seen from 2 samuel chapter 6 that god's kingdom is a place of blessing and generosity and forgiveness and restoration I implore you to be a part of it by turning and trusting in Jesus we do not approach God carelessly on our terms we approach him on his terms and God's appointed way to enter his kingdom and to approach him is by turning and trusting in his magnificent son with the promise that you will receive forgiveness and reconciliation I implore implore you to do that And I realize that many of us, perhaps most of us, have done that. Then I further implore us to serve and worship him with all of our hearts, with all of our energy, and with great humility. Jesus is a wonderful king, and his is a wonderful kingdom. And friends, as we finish, I want to say that is not Hollywood fiction. It's God's honest word to us today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness for the times and the ways in which we have approached you carelessly. Forgive us for our our irreverence. We recognise that appropriate approach to you involves uh, fear, but also great energy and enthusiasm because you want to bring blessing to us. We thank you that you have done that through the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers us forgiveness and restoration should we turn and trust in him and so for those of us who have not yet done that i pray that you might move their hearts to do that for those of us who have through faith in you not because of anything we've done i ask that you might move our hearts to serve him wholeheartedly with great energy and humility and we pray these things in his wonderful name amen friends we're going to finish with uh, a song or two Uh, be a collection song. If you want to uh, pop a Connect card in the bags as they come around, that'd be a great thing to do. Let's stand.